Welcome to episode 7 of season 2 of Rigged. In this week's episode, Luke, Ryan, Chris, Ilias, and Jamie continue to discuss the only federal investigation of a police department in the Trump era, the 2018 report on the Springfield Police Department's narcotics unit. It seems that the Springfield PD have an apparent obsession with punching suspects in the head. They also have an apparent tendency to fight teenagers and suspects who are 5 foot 9, 140 pounds by having four officers surround these suspects and proceed to gang kick and beat them. This and other disturbing details of this rogue unit are covered in this episode. Also, Jamie's book Rigged is now available on Amazon. There's a rumor that it makes a great stocking stuffer, but you know, we don't have any documentation to back that up. Anyway, as always, please like and subscribe and enjoy the episode of Rigged. In another widely reported incident, a former, a former Narcotics Bureau evidence officer was indicted in January of 2016 for stealing cash from the narcotics evidence room. This is Kevin Burnham. Um, the stolen cash allegedly was obtained from more than 170 drug cases to and totaled almost $400,000. The officer was a 43-year-old, 43-year veteran of the SPD, and at the time of his retirement in July 2014, was the longest-serving officer in SPD. The officer died before this matter could be resolved legally or administratively. And how did he die? That was unfortunately, suicide. Yes, correct. But he was also, if people remember the Dwayne Cook episode, uh, you know, some of what happened to Dwayne Cook was because uh, Kevin Burnham was the evidence officer and he brought Mr. Cook's evidence sample into the lab on a Wednesday, which uh, is sort of complicated. But if people remember, uh, Farrick knew that he wouldn't seal his bags and appears that she actually went into his case in particular because it was submitted by Burnham on a Wednesday. Right. And she would, knowing that he was coming in on Wednesday and that, that he would use the lab's heat sealer, she would right. turn it down so that they were unable, <laughs> unable to get a, a good seal that so she could open it without in, in any way you know, yeah. showing what she'd done. She was so crafty. <laughs> anyway, we had another episode on all that. I just wanted to point out this is the same guy. This is that Kevin Burnham who will, will do it dedicate an entire episode to because there's been f uh, numerous FOIA violations on the uh, part of the state trying to hide, even to this day, Kevin Burnham's activities at the drug office. I, I highly suspect that the $400,000 number that they've pegged here for that he's responsible for stealing is very low. And they don't talk about any of the drugs that were missing anyways, but any, anywho. Um, well, just as an interesting anecdote in preparing for today, I, I, I Googled Springfield and evidence uh, and uh, I had something popped up that I hadn't seen, which is from the uh, jurisdiction of West Springfield. And I'm, uh, Luke, I'm assuming that that's a adjacent, uh, but, but wholly separate uh, entity. Um, but the uh, apparent, apparently, according to the news article I read, the uh, a captain uh, in that department who was sort of heir apparent to become the, I think, the chief even, um, uh, was alleged to have stolen, uh, uh, and I think was found to have stolen $17,000, um, uh, which I think he tried to claim um, he needed to do some more like examination of the money or something. So he took it back to the office. 
Um, but when he turned, and then he turned back in the envelope when somebody complained, but the problem is that it now had bills in it that apparently were, were, were printed uh, uh, by, uh, under the authority of the Federal Reserve after uh, the <laughs> alleged date of the arrest. So that's a problem. Um, but to Luke's point, there's a situation where I think you're caught red-handed. And I, I, I think your duty, your oath requires you to say, yeah, I took 17000 to pay my mortgage. Not to say I did some, I was, you know, doing some further investigation and here's your future money. Um, and, and I think it, it sort of underscores a, a major problem, a disconnect, which is that the, the truth seems to be the victim of all of this. That, that, that if you have one organization sort of sworn to the truth and they have a hard time uh, uh, embracing the truth, then what are we even doing with all? What, what's, what's the point of all of this? Exactly. But you know what? In uh, in defense of that guy from West Springfield, envelopes have been known to travel through time. So <laughs> that, that's a screenplay I am writing. So it's copywritten, guys. So hands off. I had one observation about the money issue uh, that just occurred to me as uh, people were talking earlier. But there may be, you know, two separate things that are going on, which makes it much easier for the police to uh, do this. So um, first, uh, you know, we have the civil forfeiture issue. And so it's a different standard in Massachusetts. It's one of the lowest in the country and it's actually a different civil case. So if they get that one done beforehand, uh, before the criminal case, then the money goes, gets split in half between the police and then uh, the DA's office. So if that's already occurred, any officer who's thinking about whether or not they'll get caught uh, uh, may have an incentive to just wait until that happens. And then another thing that happens with, is not necessarily sinister, but I know I think all of my trials have involved any money. The actually bills themselves didn't make their way to court. There's usually just a picture um, and that's generally sufficient. And, and uh, Defense attorneys typically don't object to that because it's just thought to be a waste of time and professional courtesy. But when you have these things going on together, when the jury later on is going to be relying on a, a photo uh, that was previously existed and really isn't uh, disputed. And then also uh, the money's already in the police's hands uh, under a civil forfeiture statute creates uh, an incentive and a, and a way for this all to happen. Right. Right. And, and, and it's, uh, it's it's really hard for me to separate. I mean, they have these pie charts that I think the attorney general's office or someone compiled, or maybe it was the trial courts, um, that shows you how much money comes into the system via civil forfeiture and how much of that is drugs. And to call it a pie chart, I mean, it, it would be an insulting piece of the pie for the, the non-drug money, right? I think there's one other category that you can actually see and then everything, all the others are like hairline. Um, so it's really it's really drugs uh, funneling all this money into the system. And one of the questions that I've had a hard time answering is how does that money get accounted for? So if you have a major police department like Springfield, which I'm sure their police budget is in the millions, right? I don't uh, annual budget is some uh, number in the maybe tens of millions. How much of that is actually forfeiture money? And if we started to rein back the war on drugs, how much hurt is there going to be on a, a department that relies on this money 
And, and if we don't even know, if I can't even open up a, a annual report and circle the number, which is how much money they kept because of forfeiture, uh, we don't even know what's at stake here. Right. I don't know. Has anyone ever figured that out? How much money they get? Well, one of the most fascinating things about um, civil forfeiture in in Massachusetts is there's a lot of jurisdictions that um, each year when a municipality kind of decides how much we're going to allocate to the police department, they'll take a look at what they took in from from forfeitures the year before, and they can say, "Okay, you guys get about you know five million dollars off the street." Um, and so we can take that into account as we're setting your budget for the coming year. Massachusetts is one of those jurisdictions where forfeiture proceeds are literally pennies from heaven. By, by law, municipalities cannot take into account uh, any money that was seized through forfeitures and allocating resources to police departments. So this is... Um, really ripe for abuse. It is policing for profit. I would commend anybody listening to the Institute for Justice's um, reports that are titled Policing for Profit, that they routinely give the Commonwealth of Massachusetts the lowest grade in the country. There is less transparency in our civil forfeiture laws. There is more profit incentive uh, anywhere else, and there's a lower burden of proof. They have to, uh, a, if you're caught with money, um, it's your burden to show that it's unconnected to any kind of crime. It's it's you have to prove a negative, which is you know practically impossible. So, um, to your point, Ilias, it, it's historically we have just let a hundred percent of these proceeds go to law enforcement. The DA's office get fifty percent. The police department gets fifty percent. And how we force them to account for what they take in and what they spend it on has historically been comical. They just haven't done it. They've just let cops and and DAs grab this money and and create the most perverse incentive imaginable for how laws get enforced. And and some of that money goes to what I call uh, uh, PR, uh, which is, you know, when you see your local town police uh, organizing a charity, you know, um, softball match to raise money for something, or, you know, they put on a, a, some sort of a high profile event. I mean, some of that money is coming from drug seizures. And so they're sort of co-opting us as the public to sort of uh, accept and, and embrace the status quo uh, when really it's sort of questionable. Why is that a good use of public funds to do, you know, don't we have other parts of our government that do uh, uh, PR uh, things? Uh, why is why are the, why are, why are the why is law enforcement doing that? Uh, I mean, the, the tax collector's office doesn't put on softball games, um, so uh, it's it's sort of uh, I think we've all been not only uh, co-opted in terms of our worldview of drugs, but now we sort of like that we get a taste of that money somehow. Oh, yes. And so uh, just let me hit this real quick. Uh, So continuing on about that. So in the investigation, they talk about how they investigated what they did. And they said, although we attempted several times, we did not individually interview any narcotics bureau commanders or officers currently serving within the narcotics bureau. SPD informed us that the narcotics bureau command staff and officers were unwilling to engage in one on one interviews with us. 
We did, however, conduct a group interview with Narcotics Bureau supervisors. We also met informally with several groups of Narcotics Bureau supervisors and officers to inform them of our investigation and learn about Narcotics Bureau operations. In all, we spoke to over 40 SPD officers and command staff. So we have reasonable cause to believe that Narcotics Bureau officers engaged in a pattern of practice of using excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment. We reviewed the Narcotics Bureau's uh, force practices, mindful that officers have both the right and responsibility to protect themselves and others from threats or harm, uh, which could arise at any point in particular situations. Nonetheless, our investigation showed that Narcotics Bureau officers resort to force when there is no legal justification to do so, and that in situations where force is justified, Narcotics Bureau officers use force that is more severe and dangerous than is reasonable. In particular, our investigation revealed a pattern of, or practice of unlawful, non-lethal, and less lethal use of force within the Narcotics Bureau. So the legal standard for this is uh, the use of excessive force by a law enforcement officer violates the Fourth Amendment. In Graham versus Connor from 1989, um, excessive force claims are analyzed under the Fourth Amendment's uh, reasonableness standard, and courts are to balance the nature of quality of the uh, intrusion of the individual's Fourth Amendment interests against the countervailing governmental interests at stake. So uh, courts use a totality of the circumstances approach and assess the reasonableness of force from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene rather than with 2020 vision of hindsight. So could you guys take me through this standard? Uh, what's your interpretation of it? Do you guys, what's your understanding of it? Ilias being the you know, civil attorney might be able to, well, I probably well, so the, not the best one to comment on this. So. Yeah, so the word reasonable is a fascinating word uh, in the legal system uh, because what one person considers reasonable, um, somebody else may not, but we pretend there's an objective standard. So reasonableness is an objective standard. Um, to that, the Supreme Court in really, I think it's qualified immunity jurisprudence has said we ignore the subjective Right. This is this is a, a genius move. Right. If the a police officer says, I'm going to get that N word and I'm going to flatten his face, that might be irrelevant because we're going to judge what happens next based on an objective standard and not subjectivity. So the next question is, what was the officer's either personal uh, fear of, of objective, whatever that means, uh, of personal bodily harm? Or is there somebody else in the immediate vicinity who the officer has to protect. And, and also what is the, uh, not really factored in, but should be is what is the actual need uh, at that moment? I mean, when police officers um, uh, 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 smashed the door and threw flashbang uh, grenades into uh, Breonna Taylor's apartment, right? What was the need for that? What was that? What, 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 why couldn't you wait till daylight and mail a warrant, right? What is the actual need to uh, break down that door? So I think that that, um, that uh, we, we, we pretend that there's an urgency. This is my view, of course, this is not what the law says, but we pretend that there's an urgency and that the officer cannot be in any way persuaded that there's other options. So the op option the officer selects is the one we're going with. 
And then at that point, is the officer in, in, have any basis to feel that he might or she might be harmed? Uh, and then at that point, it's sort of like you can do anything that's proportional. And that's the other key word is proportional. Um, I'd, I'd love to see what proportional means. I mean, if I punch you in the face, do you get to punch me back? Is that proportional? Do you get to hit me with a shovel? That could be proportional. Um, so we sort of create this these sliding scales. And the problem is that at the end of the day, the number of cases where you can say this was not proportional, not reasonable, um, are, are, are comparatively few. Uh, and so it's, it's a very tough standard to get around. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier the case I had against uh, a Boston police. Uh, you know, that we, did, we didn't go to trial, we settled. I don't know what a jury would have thought. Nobody knows what a jury would have thought, you know. Um, uh, of course, you know, no crime had been committed, but does that matter? You don't need a crime to use force on a subject. Uh, you just need that same probable cause that the police need to seize money and probable cause. I'm sure you guys have seen it. It could be the, it could be a smell. It could be your eye movements, right? You're standing on a street corner and your eyes are darting around. Uh, you have a 10,000 foot stare. I've seen that one in a police report. What is a 10,000 foot stare? Have we ever done that? Does that mean that you can be uh, uh, thrown to the ground? And if you don't immediately uh, uh, consent, uh, then uh, then you can be hit. And so all these cases that have been in the news, Eric Garner, um, you know, Tamir Rice, uh, you know, go down the list. Um they all involve a, a very snap decision, which almost always goes in favor of an officer. Uh, the decision is to use the tools you have. So if all you have is a gun, that's the tool you're going to use. If, if you have a radio or your fist, that's what you're going to use. And then the question was, was that reasonable? And it's very rare that somebody uh, will say that was not. Right. And I would just add real quickly in a different context, there's been some litigation over the past uh, few years in the car stop context in Massachusetts. And it's been pointed out in various amicus briefs that uh, a driver, you know, they will find reason for the stop regardless of what the driver is doing. So either doing furtive movements or the fact that he wasn't responding, like things that are totally opposite are both sometimes used uh, as a justification for stops by the same uh, officers in different cases. So, it, you know, essentially whatever the uh, officer labels as uh, or, or independently thinks is a justification for a stop. For so many years, the courts have uh, said that's fine, that we end up with a body of case law that's very internally inconsistent. Right. And, and even running. I mean, you know, there's a, a big debate about whether running from police can create probable cause for anything. Um, and I, you know, my understanding of the law, having read a few case, old Supreme Court cases, was that you know merely running is not supposed to be enough. And I think well, Massachusetts, Massachusetts uh, has a case on that as well. But but of course, all it takes is someone to say, well, it was running plus, right? Running, fleeing from a felony, whatever that means, um, you know. Uh, and and so there, there's the, there's a very uh, uh, tricky, and I think. Uh, um, impossible to predict set of factors. And I think that's the problem. These factors are so impossible to predict. It's hard to get a trial on the civil side and on the, on the criminal side, you know, you're, you're more likely to uh, plead out a case than to roll the dice and say whether, you know, um, you, you know, to to always be able to challenge uh, 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 the circumstances of either your arrest 
Um, so I, I, I think it's, it's, it's the, the rules are written in favor of, of the police by and large, um, even though the constitutional rights are supposed to be in our favor, but they're very hard in practice to, to, to successfully litigate. In Massachusetts, we just had, this is a total outlier, but we had a decision in the past 10 years from the SJC based upon studies uh, where they concluded it is absolutely reasonable for African-Americans to run from the police because right. such of a long history of harassment. I forget if that was the Brown case, maybe. I, I don't remember. Uh, I could check it out, but I just thought that's interesting because it is such an outlier. Right. But, you know, then there's the case of the police undercover uh, or plainclothes African-American Boston police officer, uh, I believe it was Cox, who was running after somebody uh, a suspect. He, I, I think he got a call and he, he may have been off duty, but he responded and he was climbing the fence to after a fleeing suspect and he was grabbed and beaten and the police then lied about it and spawned uh, 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 years of federal litigation. Um, but, you know, they, other than mistaken identity, all he was doing was running, do actually doing his job. Um, and so I think that these factors become sort of hopeless um, and, and I don't know if my client was punched in the face repeatedly by a, a, a police officer for, uh, for no reason. I'm not sure how I'm going to prove that. Right. How do you, I mean, you know, that's not easy to do. And I'm not sure I want to, well, I want to always roll that dice. If there's no report, if there's nothing to document, if there's no video, how can it's your client's word against the police officer's word. Right. In the, in the, the police officers, there's no one who's more aware of this than all of the police officers on that force. Right. And all you have to say is they made a clenched fist and they yep. bladed their stance and I exactly. felt like he was going to hit me. And, you know, they, they have like this. I feel like they have these flashcards that have these things that they can say on them. Well, dude, um, it's the pre-etiquette questions. Remember Annie Dukin and her pre-etiquette questions that she would give to the DAs to ask her in court? Here, here's all the things to ask me to get a conviction. This is what's worked before. Like they right. literally, they, they drown out. They're not creative and they just bring out their greatest hits because they know what's effective. Within this pattern of, so I'm reading from the report again, within this pattern or practice of excessive force, our investigation identified a specific trend of narcotics bureau officers striking suspects in the head or otherwise using force that results in blows to the head in situations where uh, such force is not justified. Our investigation has uh, was narrowly focused on the use of force by the Narcotics Bureau. However, our conclusion is supported by evidence of other SPD officers escalating encounters and employing head strikes without justification. Like, what is with punching people in the head? Narcotics Bureau officers regularly punch subjects in the head and neck area without legal justification. Just like everyone else in America, you know, I just love to punch people in the head or neck without legal justification because nothing happens to me. The, the routine reliance on punches during arrests and other encounters that we discovered during our investigation indicates a propensity to use force impulsively rather than tactically. So there are a bunch of hotheads. And as part of a command and control approach to force rather than an approach that employs force only as needed to respond to a concrete threat. This, so it's, it's kind of like what we were saying. It's, it's the, the, the baddest mofo, you know, the king of the hill. This reliance on punches to the head also indicates the failure of officers to appropriately comprehend the seriousness of head strikes and the, uh, and the resistance 
that must be encountered to justify their use. Punches and other blows to the head are dangerous and can create a substantial likelihood of causing death and seriously bo- serious bodily injury. And they cite a couple cases that that's involved with. It says uh, choking and punching are broadly characterized as non-lethal levels of force, though uh, both may be employed in a manner that creates a substantial risk of death and serious bodily injury. To its credit, the SPD has adopted general orders that recognize the seriousness of head strikes. A policy on the impact tactics uh, provides that officers should avoid strikes to the subject's head, neck, spine, kidneys, and solar plex area. Targeting in more vulnerable areas of a subject's body should be undertaken only under proper circumstances. And the SFP or SPD's main use of force policies designates head strikes as level four use of force of a high level continuum. So I guess they rank the levels of force they use. And the policy establishes that punches to the head are not permissible unless the subject is actually assaultive, quote unquote, uh, defined as engaged in a perceived or actual attack on the officer or another person. Uh, So if a subject is uh, instead exhibiting only active resistance, uh, SPD officers, use of compliance techniques other than punches to the head. So if they're just resisting, they uh, they shouldn't be hitting people in the head, essentially, is what that's saying. And they knew that that's part of their policy. Um, so, I mean, one I guess the things, go ahead. Yep. One of the things that I think is really interesting that's not in the DOJ report is that this period of time that they were studying the Springfield Police Department almost lines up perfectly with a decision from command to uh, employ uh, counterterrorism approaches to uh, crime in certain uh, impoverished, uh, racially diverse portions of the city. Um, This was the subject of... um, you know, New York Times reporting, it was, it was Peace in Nature magazine about how this uh, officer who served in Afghanistan and, and Iraq came back to the city of Springfield and decided that uh, he was encountering a, a, essentially the same phenomenon where, um, you know, enemy combatants had, uh, you know, taken over these portions of the town and convinced Springfield uh, higher ups and state police that these uh, counterinsurgency tactics were what were needed to um, to, to bring order to chaos, uh, and that went down to you know predictive policing, looking to you know create these social networks, becoming incredibly I- invasive into the lives of not only you know suspects of criminal activity, but who are they talking to? Who are their friends? Who are their family? And, and I think when you begin to um, subject a civilian population to this kind of um, surveillance, this kind of scrutiny, and this kind of control, um, a lot of those like shots to the head seem just kind of in keeping with this overall general attitude that you're, you're not dealing with civilians who have you know, certain inalienable rights. You're dealing with, with, with people who need to be brought to heal, and, and you got to do what you got to do. And I think that attitude, it really does start with the top. It does. I'm glad glad you brought that up because I was actually thinking the same thing, uh, that that there are still allegations in Guantanamo and other places of torture. 
And the allegations invariably involve primarily punching, slapping, and uh, slamming a, a head and neck against the wall. And one, those things are hard to prove or disprove. Two, um, they're not torture techniques like waterboarding, right? Uh, which is actually probably a big pain in the butt. You got to have like, you know, water and some towels and you got to like kind of prepare for it. Whereas punching can be done at any time. But these are done systematically to dehumanize and to dis and, and to create a belief of complete helplessness. And I think that that's what I'm, uh, 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 so I'm glad you brought that up, Luke, because I think that's part of this, right? What the That interrogation of the 15-year-old, if nothing else, was meant to convey a complete sense of helplessness to somebody who wouldn't be in a position to know any better, probably anyway. Um, but that probably would have worked on me as well, right? It's 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 saying you have you you are powerless. You don't even have any rights. Um, and I think that type of antipathy towards uh, the rights and the dignities of citizenry uh, is is the why. Uh, but you know um, uh, 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 that seems to be unexplored. Uh, I agree that DOJ doesn't get into it, uh, and nobody and none of the co- cases on excessive force that again, compartmentalize things and look at only the objective act behavior, not, not subjective uh, motivations. We've sort of uh, allowed this to, uh, to, to, to crop up and now we can't do anything to really stop it. So um, I'll just go into some of the statistics. So out of all 84 narcotics bureau prisoner injury files from 2013 through 2019, roughly 19% of them, of the uses of force included punches to the subject's head and approximately an additional 8% involved injuries to subject's heads from another uh, form of a head strike. So if you add those together, that's what 27% are all head strikes of all incidents of uh, force used by officers. And it's, in a significant number of these cases, such force was unreasonable. For example, in one incident, narcotics bureau officer punched. Uh, see, this is Ilias. Remember in the uh, the uh, what you call it, the supplemental report where they refused to name all the chemist names when they oh, were yeah. talking about it. Yeah. Here, they're like uh, a narcotics bureau officer punched VA. They give the guy who got punched initials. But the, the narcotics bureau officer who punched him is completely anonymous. Right. It's, it's a pattern. A 25-foot a man, so VA is a 25-foot man following a foot 25-year-old. Oh, 25-year-old. 25-foot, my God. Anyway, <laughs> with me. It might have been necessary. Yeah. Okay. A 25-foot man. When the, four <laughs> narco- when the four narcotics bureau officers approached VA and motioned uh, to him to remove his earphone, his earphones, officers report, uh, the officer report states that VA pushed one of the officers and began running away. After they caught up to VA, a narcotics bureau supervisor delivered multiple punches to VA's face, allegedly because VA looked prepared to fight by holding his closed fists in a punching position, quote unquote. VA sustained a broken nose and lip laceration requiring three stitches. In the incident, 
the incident then allegedly continued on the ground with an officer and DA exchanging blows, though there is no evidence indicating that the officer sustained any injuries. Instead, it appears that officers chased VA and initiated the use of force by striking VA, a non-assaultive subject, with multiple punches, immediately using a means of force that was disproportionate to the subject's resistance without attempting or uh, other less dangerous uses of force. Given that four officers were present, other methods of control could have been used instead of immediately punching him in the head. That's their default. And that's like, again, th- you know what this reminds me of? The karate kid when all the kids surrounded Daniel-san with the, you know, dressed as skeletons and started kicking the living shit out of him. I mean, it's what, four or five on one? And that's that's how they're treating this guy? Like, right. give me a break. Well, it's, it's like... It's like my case with the four officers chasing the guy after he allegedly uh, said something profane to them. Uh, I didn't read or, or hear in your uh, recitation uh, that a crime was committed. I just was Not- thinking of that. This goes back to uh, why it's reasonable for people to run from the police. And by the way, I looked that case up. It's Commonwealth v. Warren. Um, not Brown, as I said. But anyway, yeah, I was looking at this paragraph. And uh, they tell him to remove his air, earphones, not that they saw him doing anything. And the guy, it, you know, he pushes one of them, uh, which may be assaulting a police officer. But the whole exchange started because they were stopping someone for no reason. Yeah. And, and, and you have a right, right? You have a right to not take off your headphones for police. I mean, I, you know, if they're going to arrest you, I think that the, the, the calculus is different. But you have the right, if you're walking... You have the right to keep walking. And if the officer says, I want to talk to you, uh, I'm not a criminal defense uh, uh, expert, but I believe you can, you, say no. you can say no or you can say nothing uh, or you can say, am I free to go? Uh, which I usually tell people to just keep asking, am I free to go? Uh, so it sounds like he was free to go uh, and was going. <laughs> and But the officers sort of uh, decided to change that uh, outcome. Uh, one, of the, one of the big challenges uh, is that, um, you know, Chris just referenced, uh, a, a case where, um, Commonwealth v. Warren, um, most judges, particularly on the state side, uh, where there aren't as many civil actions brought, their exposure to these cases, um, are in the context of motions to suppress, where the police are, um, crossing lines, they're using violence, they're, you know, not acting on reasonable suspicion or probable cause. But at the end of the day, they're finding contraband. And so judges who um, are, are put in a position of adjudicating pol- police officer actions have it in the back of their mind that, you know, they had, this was a good hunch, or this was a case where, uh, all right, you know, uh, do I think the officer crossed the line in their use of force with this guy? Yeah, but he had X amount of packets of, of heroin. And I think what is difficult for judges to grasp is that these cases that kind of find their way to court are a fraction of the ones where um, they happen to find contraband. So I'm, you know, the stop and frisk phenomenon in New York that took place. I mean, the the, the hit rates on these really intrusive uh, police actions were less than like 5%. They were just unilaterally stopping black and brown young men and and, and subjecting them to these humiliating um, street encounters. 
But the only ones that would kind of trickle into court were the ones where they actually found uh, narcotics. So I think it's it, judges, I think, begin to think of these police officers as, as people who have high success rates, because most of the time, the people whose rights are violated don't file lawsuits. They just have to kind of pick up the pieces and shake off the blow to the head and, and carry on with their lives. And and it creates, I think, a, a really warped vision of what actually happens out on the streets. And also, I, I think judges uh, don't really take into account that uh, evidence is planted, well, I don't know if it's all the time, but much more than the, the general public realized or realized it until recently, as I mentioned before, with body cams. So um, anyway. Well, I would say to you, broad your point, evidence planted or uh, I'll say uh, exaggerated or fabricated because how many times do you see a case where the police officer says, the guy was coming right at me with a knife and then you see a, a video <laughs> and you're like, that's not what happened. So um, the reality is that uh, police reports uh, now increasingly are, are uh, attackable. Um, and and I, some, I say that sometimes, you know, they should be filed uh, in the fiction section uh, than, than, uh, than nonfiction. Um, uh, and so, uh, but, but you're right, those become sort of uh, gospel. Right. I mean, judges are used to the police report kind of being proffered as the as the like stenographer record of something that happened. Uh, and they are written after the fact in a self-serving, very convenient fashion. They choose what to omit and what to include. Um, and if you scrutinize them carefully with actual evidence, very often they fall apart. All right. So another incident here. And here's another. This is I mean, you guys were saying that wearing earphones uh, didn't deserve getting savagely beaten by four cops. The co the crime of committee of wearing earphones did not deserve that. I disagree, but we can talk about that later. You know, I'm more hardcore. I'm German, so it's it's crazy. But so in in another incident, a narcotics bureau officer punched T.S. a 17 year old as he rode a motorbike past a group of narcotics bureau officers. Now, guys, how much are these guys supposed to take? Wearing earphones, riding on motorbikes. Mm -hmm. Like, come on. At the time of the punch, the officers were making unrelated arrests. When the youth rode his motorbike past the officers, reportedly at a, quote, high rate of speed, an officer struck the youth. In the, in the involved officer's arrest report, he does not characterize the strike as a punch, but rather states that he extended his left arm to prevent the youth from colliding with him on the motorbike. The 17-year-old then swerved his motorbike and the officer ended up making contact with the youth's head and shoulder area. Administering a fist strike in this circumstance was uh, particularly dangerous as the youth could have easily lost control of the motorbike, severely injuring himself, the officers, or others. The subject's brother, L.S., was also punched in the face by a different narcotics bureau officer. The officer who punched LS reported that he did, did so because LS ran towards the officer with his fist clenched and arm cocked back. None of the other officers at the scene corroborated the punching officer's account. Uh, I noticed in a couple of these, so uh, fist clenched, arm cocked back. They also use terms like furtive movements as a justification for some of these. And there's really no that's that's sort of a nothing like what does that mean but uh anyway that means they're looking for an excuse 
Right. In the third incident, um, so there's just one more, a narcotics bureau officer pushed JB, again, they only use the initials of the victims, a 22-year-old man, uh, punch, uh, pushed a JB, a 22-year-old man in the face uh, following a foot pursuit where JB exhibited non-assaultive behavior. So I have, again, yet to hear a single crime being committed here. After four narcotics bureau officers observed JB to be engaging in narcotics transaction. Okay, there we go. An officer engaged in a foot pursuit and shoved JB from behind so that he fell to the ground. As reported by the officer in the person in the injury report narrative, JB rolled over and began to punch at the officer in an attempt to escape as opposed to an assaultive manner. The, the officer then struck JB in the face with a closed fist resulting in a laceration to his lower lip. Nothing in the officer's narrative indicated that JB was engaging in the kind of active physical threat that would condone the use of a knuckle punch to the face, AKA a knuckle sandwich. The, the fact that four narcotics bureau officers were involved in this arrest made it even less necessary to strike the subject in the head to gain compliance. Again, ganging up and literally beating the shit out of people. They, they walk around the streets doing this. These incidents are mere examples and are not atypical within the narcotics bureau. We found multiple incidents in which officers use hand strikes following a pursuit, even when the officer report suggests that, that subjects had already sub been subdued including an incident where the Department of Justice has charged the officer with uh, criminal color of law violations. Tellingly, a former Narcotics Bureau officer reported that people know that if you mess with the SPD or try to run, you, quote, get a beatdown. Incident reports uh, we reviewed support this officer's observations. So... In many, in many incidents involving head strikes, narcotics bureau officers unnecessarily escalate encounters and immediately punch subjects without employing other control tactics that are lower use of force. So they just default to punching people in the face. That's what they do. In, in the course of one drug arrest, for example, a narcotics bureau officer punched RF, a slight middle-aged man, with attempting uh, to retrieve contraband. Officer reports states that RF resisted opening his fist and instead attempted to free his wrist from the narcotics bureau officer's grasp. <laughs> Officers then immediately punched him in the face. The narcotics bureau officer who punched RF escalated the situation without attempting other means of gaining compliance, unnecessarily resulting in serious use of force. RF is not a large individual. He's five foot nine, 140 pounds. Five nine, 140. You, you know, they, they've created, they've, there's a chart that I think most police officers are trained on that tells you where you're uh, not supposed to hit a person. Uh, and so imagine an outline of a human and the head and the center of the chest and certain delicate other areas are sort of red, meaning no, don't hit. And then there's sort of like yellow areas, which are like, we prefer you not hit like the ribs and other things. And then there's like the green zones, which are like hit away arms and legs, right? Feel free to just take your baton and, and, and go for that. But if you look at this chart, it looks like a, a, a bullseye. <laughs> Uh, where the head and the torso are sort of like inescapable centers. And so I think that this chart, which is intended to divert strikes from the head and sensitive areas, 
if anything has sort of like subliminally conditioned officers that that's where they have to hit. Cause I, you know, you never hear an officer say, well, I hit him in the permitted elbow area uh, or in the lower leg. Right. I, uh, I hit him in his foot. Cause I'm allowed to do that. You never hear that. You always hear that. Oh, I had to hit him in the head. I had to hit him in the chest. Um, and so it's sort of interesting what value that chart serves. Subliminally, they'll know that it will work to take the person down. Right. So we reviewed here. This is interesting. We reviewed incidents in which officers' uh, failure to identify themselves resulted in pursuits that ultimately escalated into unreasonable uses of force. <laughs> so they didn't tell them that they were cops. <laughs> well, they're not dressed. That uh, uh, no, they're plain clothes. Yeah, Luke and Chris, you can talk to that, but but I mean, you know, what's the context in which? Uh, that that's that's a big deal because these some of these guys themselves look kind of you know intimidating. Uh, I, I'd probably run. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I mean I, you go ahead. Oh, um, one of the first cases I, I'd been on uh, in private practice for about six months when I uh, did a duty day in Springfield District Court, and I ended up getting appointed to represent this guy who was 35 years old. He was from the Dominican. He had no criminal record. I went down to lock up to see him and he was a bloody mess. Um, he was, uh, he needed to eventually get 12 stitches. He had three of his teeth that were knocked out. The person who beat the crap out of him was Greg Bigda, the guy currently under indictment for threatening the juveniles. And um, what had happened was, is they, uh, were busting this guy's brother for my client's brother for a, a hand-to-hand sale out in the street. And they came flying in. They were all dressed in plain clothes and they started beating the crap out of the brother. And my client um, thought his brother was getting assaulted by these five white dudes and just went over and started saying, hey, stop, stop. And at that point, um, him holding a mirror up to what they were doing caused him to be um, taken into a back alley and and just had the crap kicked out of him. But I I really think that, you know, that that happens a lot. Their whole idea is they're in these places. They they don't want to look like police officers. And then they start acting uh, as police officers. And it's really confusing and it's fast paced and people um, are often feeling like they're getting mugged. And, and I've had cases where police officers did this and people called the police saying, oh my God, my, this you know, person is being assaulted. And then you find out, well, actually that's the police. They're there to perform an arrest. So um, the whole plain clothes thing uh, is, is legit. I mean, c- civilians who are just uh, accosted by people have no idea in the moment whether or not this is law enforcement action or uh, action by people who are out there to harm them, to steal from them. And, and it, it leads to, uh, you know, these reactions, which I think are totally normal. Yeah, I was just going to say, I remember growing up, I saw a cops episode. It must've been from the eighties or early nineties, but there was like an undercover, it was like a plain clothes buy and then different officers showed up in an unmarked car and got out and they had ski masks on. Um, I don't think that's the norm, but you can see, I mean, that must've happened in the eighties when things were maybe a little bit crazier, but like someone could have died. Right. That's legit. Like, come on. Jump out an SUV with ski masks and start chasing after you. 
after uh, there was an undercover buy where you just interacted with someone else in plain clothes, of course you're thinking you're gonna be you're getting robbed, right? So let me just read from this. So there's there's been reports that these guys aren't identifying themselves, right? In two nearly identical situations we reviewed involving vehicle pursuits, the driver stated that they did not immediately stop their vehicles because they did not know that the Plain Clothes Narcotics Bureau officers in pursuit were in fact officers uh, and instead feared they were being chased by criminals. The narcotics officers were in unmarked <laughs> cars and did not activate their lights. Once the drivers did eventually stop their cars in one case because an officer in a marked uh, cruiser came on the scene and activated his blue lights, and in the other case because the individuals collided with another car. So <laughs> literally, what? Jesus. The, the police then used unreasonable force to effect the arrest. So, of course, they did. In the case of uh, PJ, he claimed that he fled his vehicle because he was being chased by an unmarked vehicle and did not know law enforcement officers were in the vehicle. In, in one report, an officer described extracting PJ through the passenger side door and, and put him face down onto the pavement. Photos show he sustained... Gently. Yeah, gently. Lightly <laughs> threw him down onto the pavement. Uh, Photos show he sustained significant injuries, severe contusions and dark bruises on the right side of his face. You know, they, they go on, on the several injuries and these injuries are inconsistent with the officer's report. So obviously they're they're using way more force and underreporting. So in the case of FD, two narcotics officers, including one supervisor, stated that after a brief pursuit of FD's vehicle, they pulled FD from the car uh, onto the ground. One officer reported uh, said that FD was placed on the ground, and another report states that FD was escorted to the ground. But photos <laughs> of the abrasions of his face show that you know obviously he was kicked and and severely beaten by these guys. And so it just goes it goes on and on and on and on and on with listing incident after incident of these forceful takedowns, these you know um, shady practices. And uh, there, there's just no accountability. They're, they're allowed to do this seemingly um, at will. All right. So um, I guess we want to wrap up. I mean, how do you want to wrap up? We, you want to talk about the end of the uh, report here, or you just kind of want to give our s summary thoughts of, on this? Maybe just the very end of the report. Yeah. Exposure. Uh, and I, I just want to say a few things about the, the kind of litigation that this has spawned that's ongoing right now. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So. Okay. Uh, so I would just note that um, when after this report got um, uh, in July of 2020 came out, uh, people understandably wanted to know, as, as you've said multiple times, Jamie, who, who are these officers? Who are these people that have this track record? This is evidence that, um, you know, criminal defendants who are charged with assault and battering police officers, if those officers have a, a propensity for using unnecessary and excessive force, that's potentially admissible evidence in a self-defense um, case against uh, a charge from a police officer. And it has led to this incredible circumstance where the, the DA is suing the Department of Justice to try to get names. The Springfield Police Department is saying, well, I don't know who these people are. 
the ACLU has had to come in and sue the district attorney's office to um, get them to do the investigation to find out who are the um, the officers involved, what uh, uh, past and present criminal defendants need notice. And, and it's just resulted in this uh, complete mess where people whose liberty is hanging in the balance are, are sitting here trying to figure out now that the Department of Justice has issued this report, what what impact? Uh, how how are, how have my rights been affected? And, and it's it's an open question. Uh, one of the most remarkable things in this whole saga, I think, that happened was when they had this criminal case against uh, Greg Bigda, this officer from the narcotics department who was on the uh, threatening people. Uh, they ended up convening a grand jury. And the district attorney obtained these um, grand jury minutes and ended up sending them federal grand jury minutes to all of the defense bar in December of 2018, saying, you know, these are officers who testified, many of whom admitted drinking on the job and other misconduct. So 11 months later, the chief of the uh, Springfield police, Cheryl Crap, uh, Claprood, was being deposed and was being asked questions about you know, whether any discipline had been taken against these officers who testified at the grand jury. And she claimed that she didn't have these grand jury minutes and therefore she couldn't do anything when in fact the district attorney had sent them, um, disseminated them to hundreds of defense attorneys throughout Western Massachusetts. Her um, position was, well, I can't move forward because uh, I don't have uh, these documents. So the, 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 instinct of, of people in power in the wake of this report and in this investigation to kind of bury their heads in the sand is, is kind of the, uh, runs parallel in many ways to the, uh, the, the misconduct that gave rise to your pod here and uh, on the drug lab side. It is, nobody wants to really roll up their sleeves and, and deal with the ramifications of this first wave of misconduct, which in a way kind of leads to a second wave. Absolutely. And the and running parallel paths, right, Luke? Because they, I mean, Dukin and she was buddy buddy with the police in all in Quincy, especially in in all the districts as we've shown. Um Farak obviously was friends. I haven't seen like Hanchett's emails, but it would be interesting to see, you know, these the how the lab ties in but also it's it's not just the lab obviously it's everywhere in, in these in these police departments and there's just this wave of misconduct that and you, you catch glimpses of it when these situations arise you see little snapshots but you wonder what is really at the depths of all of this it's kind of frightening to think about but they, i mean they you know, they they found the Justice Department found that narcotics officers submitted reports with inaccurate or falsified information, that they were vague and misleading in their statements. You know, they that this is in the conclusion. And um, policy does not require appropriate use of force reporting. So they were enabled to do this stuff uh, by setting policies that didn't require officers to report accurately. And then narcotics bureau supervisors do not meaning uh, do not meaningfully review use of force. So supervisors don't take it seriously. And then SPD does not have adequate systems in place to detect, address, or prevent this misconduct. So it, it, it just goes on and on and on that 
I mean, essentially, this is what they want to happen, and they they cover everything up and enable it to happen because this is how they want their officers to behave. And by they, I mean the you know the supervisors in the in the department, the chief. If they're not willing to investigate it, this is what they want. This is what they think is effective. My problem is why don't they come out and just say that? Why, why play the dog and pony show? One final thought for me over the past few months or over the course of the past year, there's been a bunch of stuff now uh, about the Fall River Police Department. And to your point about the chiefs not doing anything, they found one guy, uh, I think it was Detective Rogelard, who had an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of drugs in his office desk uh, that were from cases. He might have been using them uh, in order to sort of illegally pay informants and the chief did an investigation an internal one and found it wasn't really wrongdoing uh and it was just sort of a paperwork error when that clearly wasn't going on and now we just recently found out uh i think in september that another one had uh cocaine from criminal cases in his residence and like his he was in the middle of the divorce and his ex-wife found it. And uh, that guy hasn't been um, uh, thrown off the force either. It's unreal. So it, it truly does permeate everywhere and we will get to other places. So, but right now uh, I just want to thank Luke for coming back on. Thank you, Luke. Great to have you um, as always. And thank you, Ilias and Chris. Uh, we will see you next on our next episode of Rick. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Rig Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out. 